Welcome back to the 166th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why the 2020 social justice movement fizzled out, how these current strikes could redefine the Democratic Party, and then a final article talking about a new tax that is coming into California that will help fund protection programs, but it is on guns. So obviously that's a divisive one. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So we are living in a time of change. Said it before, it's pretty darn obvious. You know, my question for you is which side has changed more? Because, you know, we've seen the left go a little bit more progressive. We've seen a progressive movement after um, the march on Wall Street or Occupy Wall Street. And then we've also seen a more populist change happen in the Republican Party. So which side has changed more, in your opinion? Where is the largest shift? And do you support that shift? Do you not support that shift? Do you see one as more... Uh, disruptive than the other. I'd love to hear everybody's opinions because we all know that it's a time of change and it always is a time of change, but this one feels a little bit different. Maybe it's just because it's the biggest one of my lifetime, but we'll see. We'll see. All right, let's jump into our first article that comes from the Daily Beast. Why the 2020 social justice revolution failed. So when they say the 2020 social justice revolution Uh, For those of you who are not aware of what they're speaking about, the summer of love, as some people wanted to call it, the riots after George Floyd, the outpouring and the money that went towards Black Lives Matter, this, this movement that was really, really supported by a large majority of the population during that summer. And you may be thinking, well, a large majority of the population, what do you mean? At one point, Black Lives Matter, the organization had a positive rating of I believe it was 64 percent anywhere from 65 or so to 70 I believe at its absolute peak and that's really really interesting and it does say speak to the fact that even Republicans were completely okay or a good chunk of them were okay with supporting the Black Lives Matter movement after the George Floyd incident, they saw what the progressives were talking about for a long time, or at least they empathized with that argument a little bit more. So there was a positive name association with Black Lives Matter. Now, of course, Black Lives Matter was able to capitalize a little bit. I believe after everything was said and done, their positivity rating or their positive name recognition went up by 10 points once everything settled down. It may have gone a little bit lower than it had before, but I'm pretty sure it's leveled it off, if not gone up a little bit in the post-summer of love season. But that that's a pretty big shift. I believe they were somewhere around 40% before, which means they were probably appealing to one side of the aisle for the most part, and then they were able to cross over that 50% uh, mark and make it over to, I believe, at its peak, 70%. You could go fact-check me on that one. But my point overall is, they were appealing to one side of the aisle, and then they breached onto the other side of the aisle after the George Floyd movement, but it kind of simmered out. So it was going to be this huge movement where we readdress everything, where a lot of cities actually stepped up. They took actions because there were riots, there were peaceful protests everywhere, 
and these cities were going to change their policies, and there was going to be a huge change for the rest of the citizens in a more friendly to the social movement, to the social progressive movement, the social justice movement, and then it kind of fizzled out. So this article goes, there's a new book out by an author who is actually featured here in an interview, and he kind of describes what is going on or what happened and whether or not it actually stuck, whether or not it will persist into the future. And I think it's a pretty interesting breakdown of what happened then and how he sees the movement as it is today. Quote, in 2020, a year that was sold at the time as a moment of unique political foment, as a reckoning, we saw the American progressive movement drift from the essential to the inconsequential, from the material to the illusory. In much of the same way, Du Bois writes in his first chapter of his new book, and then very little happened. He added, no major federal legislation would result from the upheaval of 2020. Some cities and states enacted modest criminal justice reforms, but many of them later quietly rolled them back. One of the examples that he uses here is, think about Minnesota. Great state, love it all together. And there was a, a shift in Minneapolis where the board that was put together in order to enact some changes actually dissolved part of the police force and they were trying to make more of a community protection program and over time they realized that wasn't actually possible they put the police department back in place and they didn't necessarily fund it as much but then over time they realized they needed it Oregon also defunded their police and they're still lower funding than they are today but they have actually put a little bit more funding back into it over the last few years so his point that it fizzled out the point that While there was progress in 2020, it has slowly faded in some areas, or there just wasn't progress at all. Uh, That that does resonate, of course. So why does it why does it matter? Because for all that hard work that the activists, that the people who were truly invested in this movement did in 2020, for all the people who were pushing this agenda, it led absolutely nowhere. And the author gives a, a few different reasons for this, but. There's one that he mentions towards the end, which is the image that it produced via the the riots, the violence that happened during that summer. And, you know, some people would say, oh, they're peaceful protests. And while I think there were peaceful protests, there is no doubt about that. To describe every single event that happened during that summer as a riot, that would be outrageous. But can we also not agree that there were riots? There were lots of riots. There were lots of burning buildings. There were lots of different incidents that bred themselves of these different situations. We also had Breonna Taylor during this time, which also helped propel the movement forward. But it also seemed to fizzle out as they weren't able to necessarily get the ends that they wanted when pushing for that case in Louisville. And then there were different innocent people killed during riots or during looting during that summer. Uh, I believe it was a gentleman who was a previous police officer who was helping his friend get some of the uh, TV, I believe, out of one of the, the shops or to clear out one of his shops so it wouldn't get looted. And then he got shot and killed. So... I feel really bad that I can't remember his name. But my point is that the image that was betrayed in the media, whether or not it was labeled a peaceful protest, there were 
lots of videos of fires and people going out and rioting at night, and that left a sour taste in some people's mouth. And the author does acknowledge this a little bit later on, but he doesn't say it's one of the main factors. And I think that that may actually be one of the main factors. When you have a social movement like, think, uh, Martin Luther King, that was for the most part, and maybe it has been you know, glossed over historically, and we focus only on the good things, but a lot of it was nonviolent, and a lot of it were just protests in March and not riots that were bred of it, then it appears as a peaceful movement you can actually affect social change. But when you start uprooting and destroying the certain communities and you have this broadcast to the rest of the country, of course you're going to slowly lose momentum. But the author does give another reason, and I want to be fair and at least highlight this one. He kind of claims that the social justice movement has really become a meme. Quote, there are a lot of good there was a lot of good progress in terms of basic consciousness raising and getting people involved and getting people to donate money, etc. But socialism is a practice. It's something that you do, not something that you are. We have a generation of people who consider themselves socialists who don't have any experience in that practice. The way this whole modern socialist thing spread, it spread like a meme. It was meiotic, a social contagion. It just became the thing to be if you wanted to be called, or if you were, a cultured, arty, left-leaning urbanite. Socialism became the assumed status of people in that sort of cultural milieu. The problem is that engagement, while it is quite wide, is very shallow, and you have a ton of people who just don't know what socialism is, end quote. And, you know, honestly, I, I agree with this point. I agree with what the author is saying here, which is being a socialist in name is very different from being a socialist in practice. If you're a socialist in practice, you're probably not going to buy into the capitalist system you're probably not going to try to buy from companies like that. You're going to try to, you know, give things away to certain people. You're going to try to live off of bartering with the people around you and allowing each person to set their own price for certain different goods. I mean, let's be clear. Socialism isn't communism. I'm not saying they're going to live in a commune, but they're going to push for a little bit more government interaction in the lives of certain people. They're going to push for a little bit more government control over industries. They're not going to necessarily promote capitalism. They're not going to try to buy goods from these huge, massive corporations unless they are under the control of government entities. And guess what? That's not actually, that's really hard to do. I mean, that's practically impossible in the United States. Some of the largest companies that are, owned by a government are utility companies. So what, you're just going to pay for your utilities and not get anything else? Everything else is part of a capitalist system. So the only way to push back against that is to not buy their products, try to boycott it, try to create things yourself within your own community if you can, you know, share them with your friends. And like I said, it's not communism. You're not all living on a commune. But there's less of an emphasis on allowing the free market to determine the prices of things and allowing you and the people around you to value your work more uh, subjectively is the way that I would put it. And even that is probably, this author would probably even argue that that definition, that way of framing socialism would be wrong. And that's the thing. We have a hard time truly conceptualizing socialism nowadays. And 
it really has become a meme. It has become something where, ah, uh, you know, screw the late stage capitalists. I talked, I've talked to a lot of people while I've been here in Kentucky that, you know, said, oh, we're in late stage capitalism. Oh, the, the capitalist system has to end. And I, I sit there like, oh, okay, whether, whether I agree with you or not, you understand that it's almost impossible to escape. This ideal that you're, you're saying that you want, you actually have to put, go out and push for. You can't just sit on your laurels and say, oh, you know, it's just the system we're in. It's absolutely dreadful. And then go out and buy something, you know, that new mask that you want from Amazon or those, those new pens that you want for your drawing class. Like, I, I don't know. It's really, it seems like it's superficial. It seems like, oh, we're just saying it, you know, we're just saying the talking points, but we don't actually want to affect change, or we don't even know how to really affect change. So, you know, that's just me agreeing with the author, who I don't agree with a lot of what he's saying, but I can at least agree on that point. So what about the riots? Because this is the part where he does highlight that the riots had some effect on the image of the social justice movement. And for a little bit of context, the person who is writing this piece asked him, you know, why were riots employed during this time and what kind of effect did they have? And the author goes on to say, quote, because a riot is hard to ignore. In other words, when you have a class of people who are having a terribly hard time generating any real world change, looting some stores and burning some down, obviously doesn't achieve anything of meaning for black people. But it looks like something is happening. The other thing is that people just really don't want to be associated with the bad side. So this is him talking about why those riots actually had a negative effect. Quote, privately, personally, and quietly, many people identify a lot of excesses of the social justice movement to be counterproductive and to be unhelpful. But because it's the job of conservatives and reactionaries to critique that stuff, they fear that if they critique it themselves, they're going to look like conservatives, end quote. Now, uh, I want to push back on two things. No, it's not the job of conservatives to critique that stuff. It is the job of anybody who doesn't want to see areas burned down, communities destroyed, looting to happen. It's the job of anybody to say that. So maybe those people who actually have those critiques should stand up. And yes, I guess you could say that the conservatives were the ones that were the most loud about it. But no, no, it's not just the conservative's job. It's everybody's job. Nobody should stand for the looting of a community. Nobody should stand for the destruction of a particular area, especially if you live there. I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. If a whole bunch of right-wing people went in there and did it, then the right-wing people as well as the left-wing people should denounce it. If the group of left-wing people go in there, it doesn't matter. Both sides should denounce it. We should not be destroying our communities. And this is where I think a lot of people who have that disconnect between some of the people in the social justice movement who think that rioting is okay because of exactly what they talked about at the beginning here, because it can get attention, because it can draw attention to the movement. And I understand that rationale, but rioting is not okay. Destroying somebody else's property, destroying somebody else's livelihood in some cases is not a way, it's not an effective way, it's not a good way in order to push your social values on the rest of the society. I just, it, it outrages me when I hear points like this and they're trying to, he's not trying to weasel out of it because he actually is directly calling it out. He is saying that 
people were quiet because they saw it as a conservative talking point, but deep down they have this sentiment. No, if you think it's wrong, speak out against it. And yeah, if you want to do a little bit of hedging, if you want to try to be, oh, well, I'm not a conservative, but we need to address it. Fine, do it however you want, but just call it out. Come on. We all know that these riots are not good for the movement itself, but they're not really good for the community around the people who are talking about social justice. And you may be like, well, what do you mean they're not good for the movement themselves, Alex? They're not. Riots, they may draw attention to it, but guess what? They draw a negative connotation to it, not a positive one. If you want to have a positive social change in America... Don't riot. Peacefully protest. That is the most one of the most beautiful things about the First Amendment, that we are able to come together. We are able to talk about our grievances. We are able to dissent verbally. We are able to show our discontent through the expression of the free market with boycotting. This is an amazing thing. And let's be clear, the government can definitely try to suppress certain things, but imagine trying to do that or an anti-establishment movement in Iran. You get shut down. Remember, what was it? I'm pretty sure at this point, it would have been eight months ago, there were the big riots for the young lady who was murdered because she wasn't properly wearing uh, the formal dress of a woman in Iran. And there was a whole bunch of people out there protesting. And the secret police were picking some of them up and murdering them. Now, I, maybe I'm completely ignorant. Maybe I have not seen the cases. But that is not happening in America. And even if it was happening, and I'm not saying it's okay if it was, but even if it was happening, it's happening so under the radar that the U.S. government understands that that is not okay. Versus the Ayatollah in Iran who is doing it out in the open saying, you shall not dissent against our administration. Come on. We understand that this place, this American philosophy is absolutely beautiful. We're allowed to dissent. We're allowed to peacefully protest. We're allowed to let our voices be heard. Violence is not the option. Violence actually strangles your movement because the people who may be willing to listen to you, those extra 30% of people who saw Black Lives Matter in a positive light, they left because they saw the violence, the, the rioting, the looting, the destruction that was born of that movement during that summer, and their opinions shifted back to where it was before. Rather than having a peaceful movement that would have solidified those people, and maybe they could have actually seen this long-lasting change that the author highlights didn't actually happen across the country. That's just my opinion. I know. I went on a longer rant on this one, but it, it does speak to the fact that there is a right way to cause social change, and rioting and looting, that, it just ain't it. It ain't it, Chief. Sorry. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from the American Prospect. The UAW strike could redefine Biden and the Democrats. Good. So, obviously, we know what's going on with the UAW. If you've seen one of my previous episodes, we had a long talk about it. But this author is coming from a little bit of a different perspective, saying, okay, this is the time to shift. This is the time to take a different approach. Yes, you are doing what you're doing, Biden, and the Democrats have always been pro-union, but this is a time when the unions can capitalize on this momentum and actually fundamentally shift the Democrats even more. At least that's how I take what the author is saying here. So here's what the, the pattern that the author tries to highlight with the Democratic Party in the past. Quote, the Democratic Party has its fault. 
it is too corporatized, often too hung up on assumptions about the electorate, and will show a genuine unwillingness to act when even the least savvy of politicos can see something is an easy win. That said, for the most part, Democrats are aligning on specific boilerplate issues. Yes, there is a spectrum of policy prescriptions, but ultimately everybody wants the same thing. One such issue is supporting labor rights and unions. Democrats are the pro-worker party, which is a relatively recent development. Uh, so hold on, that's a really, that's a recent development? Really? Inter- interesting, because I'm pretty sure it was FDR who actually tried to bolster the union. Then again, I guess you could argue that Teddy Roosevelt, who was a, a little bit more of a liberal Republican also wanted to bolster the power of the unions, and there was some sentiment from you know Abraham Lincoln that you hear about, which I mean I feel like is a little bit misattributed, but you hear some of the quotes come out. So maybe they're speaking here, but within the last hundred years, I would say the Democrats are definitely the more pro-union states overall. But let's work with their premise, and they're saying, oh well, it's it's a recent development. Maybe by recent the development, they mean in the last you know, 15 years rather than the last 100 years. Maybe my historical time uh, span is a little bit too large, but that's just one thing. So there, actually, I'll, I'll skip the rest because it is kind of boring, but it goes on to talk about how, you know, Biden has been in the pocket of corporations before, but he also, you know, has a little bit of a middle-class upbringing. So there's a mix here of where we think he would go and how he would support unions. So what is the the push that these different Democratic activists or these different people who are pushing for more pro-union policies, what are they actually pushing for overall? Quote, the same role that a general anxiety about the election serves for Ratner's Democratic readers, a general anxiety about green energy serves for Holloway and Trump's fellow Republicans. But in both cases, this pay raise, yes, everything else, no formula, actually reflects the big three's talking points. So what they're saying is, well, the Trump kind of tact here is, yeah, the workers should get paid a little bit more, but everything else they're asking for should not necessarily be on the table. He's kind of calling it out, and he's saying, no, this is exactly what the big three want. And even then, he's saying that some Democrats are actually buying into it a little bit, like Ratner himself, who is a little bit more Democratic, but he's kind of corporatist, I think is how the author would actually describe him. But sorry, I broke off the quote. Let's get back into it. Quote, they've already offered the UAW higher wages, though not as high as the union wants. In fact, the union was insulted by some of the offers. But pay is ultimately a secondary issue in this strike. The UAW's foremost concerns are ensuring that the EV manufacturing plants have good union jobs. They have they want to reinstate pensions and other benefits, and they want to end the current contract's tired system, which offers benefits and compensation based on seniority. Sorry, not tired, tiered, which artificially divides workers based on their hire dates. End quote. And this has been one of the longest criticisms of unions for a long time from both sides of the aisle and even some of the internal members, which is it is completely hierarchical. It is the oldest members of the union have the most say. They get better pay. They get the better benefits, so on and so forth. And, you know, some people want to say, well, hey, you're loyal to the union. You stick around for longer. So you should get, you know, a little bit more negotiating power, a little bit something extra for being a loyal Union member, but let me ask you this: If you are a new mechanical engineer coming into the mechanical engineer uh, system, or 
the union. And there's someone that's been there for 30 years. He's a little tired in his ways. He hasn't tried to keep up with all the new practices, but he's getting paid more. And you're able to better address the needs of the company, the needs of the people who have hired you. And you are actually more proficient and better at your job, but you get paid less because you're not a senior member of the union. Wouldn't that be a little bit frustrating? Doesn't that seem anti-meritocratic? And that has been one of the longest, longest criticisms of unions and the way that they are structured. So how can Biden turn things around? What could Biden's stands be here? How could this you know, fundamentally shift the Democratic Party? Quote, clearly the Biden administration sees the value in standing with the auto workers, as shown by Biden's decision to join the union on the picket line, just hours after Fain invited Biden to do so. Naturally, Ratner was encouraged by this move, telling NBC in an interview, for him to go on the picket line is outrageous. He bowed to the progressives, and now he's going out there to put his thumb on the scales, and it's wrong. Outrageous to him, but who else? The overwhelming support for the strikes among even a large chunk of Republicans suggests that most Americans understand that they are being screwed over by big corporations. They understand what is it is like to be treated unfairly by an employer. It's perhaps not surprising that Wall Street money managers have a long history of inflicting unfair treatment and are so out of touch with the American people, but they have no place in today's Democratic Party. So what he's basically saying is, hey, Biden's going to the middle class guy. The Biden's going down to the worker. He is actually trying to speak to the people. Now, some people will frame it as he's bending to the union, but this guy is framing it as he's taking the time to care about the average person and not necessarily about the corporate interests that would be against this type of pro-union presidency where obviously he's going to fight, as the author would frame it, for the workers more than the corporations. And this could be a fundamental shift. This could be the Democrats' way to get back into the blue-collar vote that they lost when Trump was coming up in 2016. So I think it's an interesting argument. I think there's some validity to it, too. But I also don't want to ignore the fact that you can be in the pocket of the union. And let's be clear, I'm not saying he is, but for the sake of example, the sake of simplicity, you can be in the pocket of the union and you can be in the pocket of big corporations at the same time. It actually would help both of them because then you could be the mediator between them and try to get a win-win for both of them. So to pretend that just because Biden is going down and being on the striking line with the union members that he could at the end of the day be more pro-union than pro-corporate I think it's a little bit illusionary and let's be clear I'm not anti totally anti-union I'm not totally anti-corporate you know I'm I'm just saying at the end of the day you can't make the assumption that just because Joe Biden does one thing in order to gain the support of the UAW members does not mean that it's actually going to fundamentally shift the way that his party is going and that his presidency is going. And I'm happy that this person has a different perspective. I'm happy that this person is optimistic about what they see. I think that I'm just a little bit more jaded and a little bit more cynical. But then again, they talk about how corporate power is screwing people over. So maybe not. Maybe they just really love unions and they love seeing this sort of efforts from the president. We'll see how this moves forward. I know I always say that at the end of the segments, but it's true. I can't see the future. This author can't see the future. And 
we just need to see it all unravel going forward. All right. So let's jump to our last article. It will be a very, very quick one, which comes from Rolling Stone. Gavin Newsom signs a new tax bill that will tax guns and ammunition to fund school safety in California. So, of course, over the last few years, we have obviously seen the the terrible shootings that have happened at schools and lots of different solutions have been posed. Oh, we need to put in more uh, restrictive gun laws to make sure that people can't get certain guns. Other people have proposed, oh, we need to be a little bit more stringent and follow up on some of the tips from people who are mentally ill who claim that they might want to hurt themselves or others and not make sure that they get guns. Or maybe we need to put more resource officers in schools. There have been lots of proposals. But this is an interesting move forward by Gavin Newsom saying, okay, hey, we're actually going to limit the sale of guns, or we're going to make it a little bit more difficult, we're going to make it a little bit more expensive to buy a gun, and we're also going to take that revenue and put it into protecting schools. I think that it's an interesting middle ground. I don't think that you should just tax the heck out of something if you don't want it in your society. I think that is idiotic, but it's at least an interesting solution that doesn't outright ban guns, but it makes it a little bit more difficult for people to gain access to them if they don't necessarily have the funds. So, you know, I think it's at least worth discussing a little bit. So let's talk about what the law actually does. Quote, a new law signed by California Governor Newsom will double taxes on guns and ammunition and use the money to pay for more security at public schools and gun violence prevention programs, including those focused towards young people and gangs. The state firearms tax will add another 11% tax to the federal excess tax of 10% for uh, or 11%, depending on the type of gun, and make California the only state that has its own taxes on guns and munitions per AP. The tax will not apply to police officers, and it would also not apply to businesses with sales under 5000 over a three-month period. According to the statement from the governor's office on Tuesday, California officials estimate it will generate $160 million annually to fund school safety and violence prevention programs, including initiatives to prevent school shootings, bolster firearm investigations, and reduce retaliatory violence and remove guns from domestic abusers, end quote. So let's jump back to the part where it won't actually affect businesses with sales under 5000 over a three-month period. So let's extrapolate that out. Let's say that it's 5000 for every three months. I know that's not exactly how the math would work out because it's a rolling, so it wouldn't be you know, 5,000 during a three, just three month period, it would be 5,000 from October to um, December or the end of December. And then the next goal would be through November to the end of January. So it's kind of a rolling target. So in in realistic terms, you can't necessarily go over 5,000 within a three month period, not saying that every three months you can only sell 5,000. But let's extrapolate it out. Let's multiply it by four. That's $20,000 in gun sales a year. Uh, well, for the most part, most guns are going to range you know, within that $500 to $1,000 maximum. So what, you're saying that they can only sell maybe 20 or 40 guns a year? A lot of major gun stores sell more than that. So it obviously is a nice sentiment that he's trying to protect small gun owners or gun stores, but it's not actually going to work out that way, a lot of these gun stores are going to be directly affected. But 
you know, 160 million annually for school protection programs. It's hard to find that money in other places. And like I said, I don't think taxes are the way to go about it. But like I said, interesting solution. I hope that it pans out. I hope that these protection programs, you know, if they're going to use these tax dollars for anything, which I don't think they should be using them, but if they're going to use them for anything, gun, you know, violence protection or prevention programs, that sounds like a, a noble cause. And I hope it does work out for the state of California. I just won't be moving there or buying a gun there anytime soon. All right, so let's jump to our final article, our daily delight that comes from DNP India. Kids' shoe fall in an elephant enclosure while visiting a zoo. And, you know, sometimes in life we need a helping hand, or in some cases we need a helping trunk. Quote, one video is going viral on the Internet which shows the intelligent and adorable nature of an elephant. Animals always feel humans and their emotions. The recent viral video is proof of that. The video shows an elephant giving a shoe back to a human after it fell in the zoo enclosure, end quote. And honestly, the fact that the elephant was able to understand what was happening, the shoe falling down where it needed to go, picking it up and giving it back, that, that really does speak to the, how intelligent these creatures are. Quote, it is said that the video that is from Weihai, China, a shoe has fallen in the elephant's enclosure as shown in the popular video. The elephant scoops up the shoe with its trunk and stands there for a second. Then he turns around, lifts his trunk in the air, and stretches it towards the people standing above. Absolutely adorable. We love seeing this from our animal friends. And if you want to see any of the cute photos or videos from this article or read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find all of them. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, as well as Podvine. Also, Google Podcasts is going away here soon, so rip another Google product. And, of course, you can find the Twitter handle down there at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.